This is an ABC podcast. Hundreds of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander delegates at the Uluru Convention told the Australian people what they wanted. A voice to advise Parliament on their affairs. In 2017, we seek to be heard. But the government has responded to the Uluru statement with a firm no. It's a pragmatic level of thinking about the reality of what will fly with the Australian people and what won't. In the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which was handed to the Australian people in 2017, Indigenous Australians asked for the establishment of a First Nation voice enshrined in the Constitution. While that request was quickly rejected by the government, we thought it would be interesting to look at what a First Nation voice might look like. And one place where such voices have been established is in the Scandinavian countries of Norway, Sweden and Finland. For almost 30 years, Indigenous or Sami parliaments have existed alongside the national parliaments of these three nations. So how do these Sami bodies work and what impact have they had on the national politics? Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on RN. Comparisons are always hard. These Scandinavian nations were not colonial settlements as we were here in Australia, and each of these Sami parliaments is quite unique. But despite this, they do offer an interesting example of the possible relationship between a democratically elected parliament and its First Nation people. But before we get to the ins and outs of these three parliaments, who are the Sami and where have they traditionally lived? Ulf Merkemstan is a political scientist at Stockholm University. The Sami is an indigenous people that's been living in the north of Scandinavia, in the Barents region, in an area called Satmi on the Sami languages. The Sami have been divided through the course of history between Norway, Sweden, Finland and Russia. But they still have this common territory that is from Norway to Russia. They have a lot of traditional occupations like reindeer herding, hunting, fishing. The number of Samis are not known because we don't have any uh, statistics in Sweden based on ethnic grounds or in Norway either. But the figures most commonly seen on the Sami homepages is around between 80 to 150 and 120,000 Samis all in all, 50 to 65,000 in Norway, 20 to 40,000 in Sweden, around 10,000 in Finland and 5,000, 6,000 in Russia. The Sami people are a minority in four countries, Norway, Sweden, Finland and Russia. And then we are also an indigenous people. Most of the Sami are living in Norway. In Finland there are about 10,000 Sami people and in Russia maybe 2,000. And we have in Scandinavian countries and Russia, we have our own languages, nine languages, and our own cultural traditions. Vilip Pekalekala, Professor of Sami Cultural Studies at the University of Oulu in Finland. The idea of the Sami politics nowadays is that we are one nation, despite the borders that have been drawn, especially in the 19th century. 
But if you think that, uh, for instance, in the Finnish side, there are three separate Sami languages. And for instance, uh, the speakers of North Sami and Skolt Sami don't understand each other. So there are also these differences. In a treaty that established the border between Norway and Sweden in 1751, the Sami were recognised as a distinct people. The treaty allowed for the free movement of the Sami and their reindeer across the newly created border. Yet despite this early recognition, Sami culture was assumed to be inferior. Basically, it's quite a difference between the four countries here. If I speak about Sweden, what I know the most of, Sweden had very strong race biology dominating before Second World War. We had the first Institute of Race Biology in Sweden established already in 1922, and the Sami were of interest. The Sami were recognized as the first people living up north in Sweden, but they were not considered to be owners of the land. And the idea was to be kept as reindeer herders. They needed to be separated from what they called at that time civilization, that is, the Swedish culture. So the Sami culture was seen as inferior to the, to the Swedish culture. So they separated the reindeer herders from the Swedish culture and from the Swedish population and assimilate the rest of the Sami that were not reindeer herders, that have either left the reindeer herding or if they were hunters, fishers or farmers. So they were to be assimilated as soon as possible within the Swedish society. The cultural assimilation has been hard. Government policy towards the Samis has been to to make us all to good Norwegians or good Swedes or good Finnish. So the Sami way of living was going to be erased. Eva Josefsson, Associate Professor at the Arctic University in Norway. But then again, this is different countries. And and if you look upon what kind of policy the different governments had, the Norwegian government was definitely the toughest. They had the hardest policy. It was very gold-oriented in terms of erasing the Sami culture. In terms of language, it wasn't allowed to speak Sami in schools, for example, Industry fishing, you didn't get a loan necessarily. If you didn't speak Norwegian, you didn't get land. So in Norway, that was quite quite harsh. And also the, the degradations and the shame that people was subjected to. In Sweden, there was a category split policy. So the Swedish government treated the reindeer herding Samis in a different way than they treated the other Samis. So they had a segregation policy towards the reindeer herding Samis in Sweden. So they were going to be separated from the Swedish society. They were going to maintain the traditions. So they were not going to be included into the modern society. Whilst the other Samis, the the non-reindeer herding Samis in Sweden, they were going to be turned into Swedes. So the assimilation policy towards them was comparable to what we have seen in Norway. In Finland, the policy wasn't that hard, but but still it was absolutely also present there. In Norway, there was a clear assimilation politics against the Sami. While in Finland it was more gentle, there was no legislation against the Sami. 
but I have called it friendly assimilation. They were satisfied that if the Sami would have the same rights other Finns in the area have, but there was no discussion about the special rights for their own language and their cultural heritage. So they had to speak Finnish and to learn Finnish values. Second World War was the turning point in Sami history. The German occupying forces burned down large parts of northeastern Sami before retreating in 1945. In the wake of the war, a new view of the Sami arose, and there was a break with the Norwegianization policy of earlier times. And did that attitude towards the Sami start to change after World War II? Yes, it started to change after World War II, and basically when human rights came as the major force for the Swedish government, they changed the policy, and you see a development when the spread of the welfare state in the Nordic countries in the 50s and 60s, everyone was to be equal, both social and economic, and that included the Sami as well, but then there was the idea of making them equal to other Swedes or Norwegians was to rationalize the reindeer herding so they should be economic entrepreneurs and not to be seen as a livelihood but as a business like any other business. Assimilation policies, however, retained their grip over these nations despite the growth of the welfare state. But as Sami organisations grew in the 1970s and applied pressure on the national governments, things slowly began to change. And in Finland in 1973, the government established the first Sami parliament. It changed in the way that the Sami started to make political actions. Political movement was born in Finland after the Second World War. In Finland, it started with Sami associations, but the attitude of the Finnish state was changed only in the 70s when the Sami movement got so strong that something had to be done. Finland, in fact, was quite progressive compared to other Scandinavian countries. That in 1973, they established the Sami parliament or Sami delegation, as it was called. It was the first Sami parliament in the world in 1973. It was 15 years before Norway and Sweden established this kind of representative bodies. How did that first parliament actually work? And what, what kind of led the Finnish government to establish it? Well, the Sami politicians of that time have been saying that it was the time of radicalism in, in the whole world and also in Finland. And the Sami were quite a strong part of that radical movement. And in order to get control for the Sami issues, the Finnish cabinet established the Sami parliament, which was uh, quite an abstract idea on that time. They were thinking that it's like one sector of local Finnish administration. How did it work and just how much power did it have? Well, it had 21 members 
in the Sami parliament and it had a, its own board that was the executive body of the Sami parliament. And it was elected among the Sami in Finland. But it is true that it had not very much power. It couldn't decide about the land rights. It couldn't de- decide about anything. It could discuss about things that how different successions to use the Sami land, for instance. But it could only make papers. It had no no control on their own areas. You're listening to Rear Vision here on RN. I'm Annabel Quince. We're looking at the story of the Sami parliaments in the Scandinavian nations of Norway, Sweden and Finland. It was the protest by the Sami in the 1970s over the building of the Arta River hydro dam that forced the Norwegian government to change its policies. The assimilation policy and the norms and the values of that, it was integrated into the system and into people's heads. So it really didn't change or there weren't any significant shift until on the Norwegian side until the 70s and early 80s. Because then we had the sort of a paradigm shift here on the Norwegian side. The Norwegian government was going to dam the Alta Kautokeino River, establish an electric power plant, and there was huge civil disobedient actions. During the struggle against a hydroelectric development project on the Alta Kautokeino River system in Finnmark, environmental problems and Sami issues became linked. There were demonstrations in Alta, Sami on hunger strike in front of the Norwegian parliament building and demonstrations in the prime minister's office. This is the core Sami area and that area was very important for the reindeer herding industry. So if the dam was originally planned to be a very huge dam, so the consequences towards the reindeer herding people was going to be significant. It became an alliance between the Sami movement and the environmental movement. And that alliance turned out to be quite strong. People came from all over the country and also from from other countries to demonstrate and and sit down. And it was hunger strikes in Oslo outside the parliament. There were Sami women occupying the prime minister's office. And that challenged the picture that the Norwegian society had of itself as a human rights country that was concerned about human rights. And and suddenly they, they saw that in their own country, they didn't give the Sami people human rights as they were so strongly promoting internationally. So it became quite a wake up for the Norwegian government and the parliament. And that was a shift that was significant and had a huge impact here in Norway in terms of Sami rights and also 
flooded over the borders. So the government in Sweden and in Finland probably also felt the pressure. And at the same time, the Samis in the other two countries took this as an inspiration. Norwegian state used quite strong measures to to win that conflict. But because of the international pressure, they had to approve many of the demands by the Sami movement. And after that, the Norwegian Sami politics was changed so that that already at the end of 80s, they were building their own Sami parliament, Sami language act and ratifying the ILO convention. So it was very radical change in the Norwegian Sami politics. They went into dialogue with the Sami organizations. First of all, the dam is there, but it's scaled down. So it's not that huge dam that was originally planned. And the Samis had organizations here in Norway, and they had developed policy over decades since the Second World War. What kind of issues they wanted to forward towards the government, what kind of of demands did they have? And they had demands in terms of land rights. They wanted land rights to be identified. And they had a claim that the government should establish democratically elected assemblies, Sami assemblies, so that the Samis themselves could have a collective voice. Those two claims, in addition to claims on language and culture, was put into this dialogue with the government. And out came two commissions that mapped these Sami claims. And they also forwarded suggestions, both in terms of Sami language. We got the Sami Language Act and also a Sami parliament. So we got the Sami Act here in Norway. And so through that actions, the civil disobedience actions, we got the Sami parliament whose mandate was to work with all issues that the Sami parliament itself regarded of essence for the Sami people. In 1987 came the Sami Act and in 1989 His Majesty King Olav V opened the first Sami parliament. Det blir Gud signe Sametingets vägning och erklärade det första ordentliga Sameting för öppet. So I'm interested in why there was a push for a Sami parliament and why there wasn't, say, a push for a certain number of seats within Norwegian parliament to be, I guess, set aside for Sami. I mean, what was the reason behind ha- setting up a Sami parliament? Mainly it was because seats in the parliament wouldn't get us out of that political minority situation. So to have seats in in the Norwegian parliament wasn't going to give us a separate Sami voice. It was going to be integrated into the Norwegian parliament and into the Norwegian policy. Instead of a Sami parliament, as we have now, that has the main focus on Sami issues and has established sort of a Sami perspective, in a whole range of issues. And those issues are decided upon by Samis in a Sami assembly consisting of only Samis and that have the Sami way of thinking with them and that they don't have to debate with Norwegian policy in terms of priorities or 
or what, what kind of values one should prioritize in decision-making processes. Instead, now we have a Sami parliament where they debate Sami issues, a whole range of Sami issues in every aspect of the society. And from that, the Sami parliament council can then promote and go into dialogue with the government and with the parliament and with regional assemblies and with local assemblies. So they work on a whole range of, of different levels, also internationally. And it's not certain that we would have had the same opportunity to work in that way and have that autonomy as we have now, because the Sami parliament in Norway is Sami political self-determination body. So they freely put on the agenda and freely make decisions without any strings attached to any Norwegian political body. Sweden followed Norway and established a Sami parliament in 1993. However, unlike Norway, where it was an independent political body, in Sweden it was created as an agency of the Swedish parliament and therefore has never had the same level of independence. The problem or the official status, the formal status of, of, the, of the Sami parliament is as a government agency. The mandate of the Sami parliament is formally comes from the Swedish national parliament. And in Sweden, to be a government agency, that is that your formal position is under the Swedish government, that creates conflicts because on the one hand, you're the representative of the Sami people and should safeguard the interests of the Sami. On the other hand, you are a government agency that should work in the interest of the government. That means that you construct a conflict within the Sami parliament. And that is basically a conflict that is very problematic to handle. So what's its main functions? Its main function is basically to handle a lot of, of cultural affairs among the Sami. Also, they are responsible for the Sami development and of the Sami languages. So they have independence on certain issues, certain areas, but the final decision is within the national legislation. So they don't have any legislative power, they don't have any veto power, and they don't have any independent financial resources. They get their budget from the Swedish government. In Finland and Sweden, the Sami parliament there doesn't have the same power foundation as we have in Norway because the Sami parliament in Sweden is not only a body that is elected among the Sami, it is also the government's body. So it is an administration body for the Swedish government. So they don't have that autonomy and can't necessarily be labeled as a political Sami self-determination body. And in Finland, they have little power in terms of the government, don't have the same channels into the, the government in Finland as the Norwegian Sami parliament have. And I think the reason that we have that in Norway is first and foremost the Sami parliament status as an autonomous body. The government can't instruct the Sami parliament and the only way 
that the Norwegian parliament can give any directions is through law or just to put down the Sami parliament. So the Sami parliament in Norway have quite a huge degree of, of political freedom to make any decisions or take any initiatives they want themselves. So does it have actual legislative power, the Norwegian Sami parliament, or is it much more kind of advisory? They said it was an advisory body when it came into being, but it didn't go many years before one saw that the advisory dimension was supplemented. So the advisory dimension, yes, it is there. But when the Sami parliament are into dialogue with the Norwegian government, it doesn't just advise, it debate, it forward claims, and it demands answers from the Norwegian government. So there is a much more dynamic and equal process, even though it is the Norwegian parliament that make the final decisions. But the process, Sami parliament has the opportunity to demand to be part of the process prior to decisions. And sometimes they succeed, other times, of course, they does not. And there has been, as I said earlier, some setbacks in terms of influence. But all in all, I think if we see soon 30 years ago, in these 30 years, there have been a huge development in terms of Sami rights in terms of language and culture, land rights, industry, what kind of influence the Sami parliament has when it comes to windmills, establishment of mine, and so forth. So who can vote for the Sami parliament and who can stand for election? There is an electoral role where only Samis can enrol. So it is not open for anybody else. It's just Samis who can register and also who can run for election. You have to declare that you are a Sami, that you regard yourself as a Sami. That's a subjective criteria. There's also an objective criteria. You yourself, one of your parents or one of your grandparents or one of your great-grandparents have to have spoken Sami language at home, so as a home language. That's the two main criteria. In Sweden, they don't have the the great-grandparent criteria. And in Finland, they have a criteria where there is also people who were registered in lap registers from 1700s and forward. And they have had huge conflicts on the electoral roll in Finland due to that, because the Sami parliament has dismissed people from registering because they have said that they are not Samis and this had been taken into court, into the Finnish court system and the Supreme Administrative Court in Finland has decided that a lot of people, regardless what the Sami parliament said, has been given the opportunity or the right to register. This is a huge debate on the Finnish side. So what advice, if any, would you offer Indigenous Australians who are seeking a voice into the Australian Parliament? If there's one thing is a legal foundation, because what the Sami Parliament here in Norway have prioritised is to get Sami rights into legislation. It cannot 
only be provision made by the, the government. It has to be the parliament, the Norwegian parliament, that has put down Sami rights into legislation because then the government can't just change them with a pen stroke. And that is why the Sami parliament has prioritized to get Sami rights into acts. That is a much more concrete foundation than any government decision can be. Eva Josefsson from the Arctic University in Norway. My other guests, Ulf Mökenström from Stockholm University in Sweden. And Velip Pekalekala from the University of Ulu in Finland. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. Thanks for downloading this program. If you have the time, please rate and review Revision on your podcast server. That way other listeners will be able to find us.